Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show we catch up on all that's been happening on the TV and indeed the big screen with everything from the book of Boba Fett on Disney to the return of Keanu Reeves in The Matrix as well as George Clooney's latest directorial effort, The Tender Bar. Plus, I chat to musician and filmmaker Philip King about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all, and most importantly, a happy new year to you. I hope you had a nice Christmas and you're having a nice new year, and you're surviving with half of the country appearing to have something and the other half staying away from work because people they know have it. It's crazy. But look, we'll uh, stay away from that for the next hour. How about that? And we'll take respite in the big screen and the small screen. As I say, a happy new year to you all. I had a nice restful Christmas and managed to remain mostly illness free. I have inherited some strange food habits I'm trying to get out of. I'm eating cheese at random hours. We've got this whole load of cheese in our house over Christmas and I seem to enjoy eating it at night. So I'm I'm trying to wean myself off the cheese as things stand at the moment. The cheese sweats, I I, I can't handle them anymore. Uh, One or two people in touch about my Christmas show that I did on Christmas Day and how it wasn't podcast. And just to say, we didn't podcast it because it was very much a kind of live thing uh, at 11 o'clock on Christmas Day. It probably wouldn't make for the it would be a slightly incongruous listen now if you were listening back to it because it's me talking about, you know, great Christmas movies and playing some of my favourite Christmas music. It's probably moved on a little. You can listen on the Listen Back facility on the News Talk website if you want. But uh, tune in again next year if uh, all stays the same. Now, I want to talk to you, obviously, about this. I am not a bounty hunter. I've heard otherwise. I know that you sit on the throne of your former employer. Jabba ruled with fear. I intend to rule with respect. Yes, that's a clip from the book of Boba Fett. I suppose the next instalment of Disney's reworking, reimagining, uh, burrowing through the Star Wars universe. In a way, it's the next thing from The Mandalorian, which for Star Wars fans was surprisingly amazing. I think there was a lot of, you know, concern at that Star Wars going onto TV, a streaming service was going to be strange, but The Mandalorian was brilliant. And I've said before, I I think it was the best piece of Star Warsdom since Return of the Jedi. So in the book of Boba Fett, again, continuing after the events of The Mandalorian and Return of the Jedi, Boba Fett, this character who we first saw in The Empire Strikes Back, getting his own story. And there's two episodes out so far. They're only dropping once a week. That happened with The Mandalorian. The second one was out this week. And what you've got in this is Boba Fett. And it's kind of his, I won't say his origin story, but it's telling us what happened to him after the events of Return of the Jedi, where he was, we thought, eaten 
by a large monster, but it appears not. So it's all about what happened to him after that. And then as you heard in the trailer there, in tandem with that, it's telling us about him basically taking over where Jabba the Hutt rules. Now, if you're not a Star Wars fan, none of this makes any sense to you. If you are, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so it's telling his story in, in two distinct tandem arcs. I should say the actor playing him is... Tamura Morrison, New Zealand actor, plays him very well. He's he's a real presence and an interesting kind of presence. It's hard to tell if he's a good guy or a bad guy at times. And his raison d'etre having taken over from Jabba the Hutt, as you heard in the trailer there, is that he's going to rule with respect as opposed to tyranny. And so far, it's okay. Uh, I'm not sure about this double arc thing where they're telling two stories. As someone said to me during the week, they need to decide what story they're telling. It's fine so far. I've been watching it with my eldest chap and he's been enjoying it too. I do think though, we might be in danger here of, you know, over-egging the eggnog or there's a lot of fan service here. There's a lot of references to the original trilogy. There's one or two scenes in it that are complete pastiches and that's being kind of Return of the Jedi. So I'm enjoying it. I'm going to stick with it. Some concerns and I, I just wonder... Do Disney need to move on to another part of the Star Wars universe? This is also taking place on Tatooine, Luke Skywalker's home planet. We've had a lot of stories from there. Uh, as I say, I'm going to stick with it. Maybe the next thing that comes should be something on a different planet or a completely different kind of Star Wars character or a completely new one that we've never really heard of before. Or maybe they should just stop for a while, but I don't think that's going to happen. Now, a movie that I caught up on over Christmas, and I wanted to tell you, particularly if you have younger people in your life, is Clifford the Big Red Dog. Now, this is based on a famous series of books for kids from the 60s, I think it is. And in the movie version, there is a dog who's named Clifford, who's very small, and then he gets a lot of love, and he becomes very big. (laughs) And it's a pretty decent kids movie uh, and one that you will smile along as an adult as well I think it's fair to say the actress from she's a young actress she's only 14 I think Darby Camp people will know her as the little girl as she was in Big Little Lies she was also the child in the Christmas Chronicles she plays this young girl who's living with her mother in an apartment in Manhattan her mother has to go away and her uncle played really well by the English actor and comedian Jack Whitehall comes to mind her and this small dog comes into her possession She gets the dog from a really good John Cleese, who's playing this kind of strange, almost mythical zookeeper of sorts, who has a twinkle in his eye. He's great in it. And the dog gets massive and they can't contain it. And then a kind of cat and mouse thing where some nefarious people want to steal the dog off her and a bit of a cat and mouse chase takes place all over Manhattan. I laughed a few times. My nine-year-old and six-year-old loved it. Uh, So it's still in the cinemas. So Clifford the Big Red Dog is a nice kids movie if you're in the mood for something to take your mind off the world. I would highly recommend that. Now another TV show I watched over the festive season that I have to talk to you about is this. All eyes on you. Famous Mrs. Sweeney. Captain Ian Campbell. I know who you are. Be my duchess. Yes. He's a married man, carrying on as if he isn't. Ian Campbell, Duke of Argyle. Margaret Campbell, Duchess of Argyle. I've read so much about you. I feel I know you. Do you? Everything is about sex. I like it very much. And I'm extremely good at it. My 
How many men have you got? How many women have you got? Every morning, I wonder which Ian I'm going to wake up to. If you're drunk last night and you're drunk now. Here's the thought, Margaret. Pay the bills. It's what you're for. We have to stop doing terrible things to each other. What terrible things have you done? That's a clip from A Very British Scandal. You may have seen this. It started on BBC One on St. Stephen's Night and it aired for three nights consecutively. And it's Claire Foy and Paul Bethany playing the Duke and the Duchess of Argyle. This was a famous divorce case from the 60s where two people who already had complicated love lives came together and got married and they became the Duke and Duchess of Argyle. And it was a famous divorce case because it got incredibly nasty. There was a famous photo where the Duke supplied in the case of his wife performing a sex act and the man in question who it was being performed on, there was no head on his photograph. So he was called the headless man. There are lots of jokes you could make. Let's not go there. But this was a very famous case and the Duchess was painted as was the want of the time, as this loose woman, a woman of loose virtue. And I suppose A Very British Scandal is trying to write that narrative a bit and and say that there was two people in this very bitter divorce that got incredibly scandalous. But it's not just that. It is a gripping drama. And Claire Foy playing the Duchess is absolutely brilliant in it. When she meets the Duke, she's a divorcee already. She's out and about on the London scene. And by her own admission, she enjoys the company of men. And she falls for Paul Bethany, who we think is cool, but then turns out he's far from cool and a very unpleasant man who's really interested in her money and not much else. And they have this horribly bitter divorce that, where both of them are trying to outstrip each other. And Claire Foy is absolutely brilliant in it as a woman trying to stake her own claim in the world and put up with all the supposed shame. It's brilliant. It really is. Uh, It was, as I say, gripping drama. I watched it every night. Now, here's the problem. I'm not sure if you're going to be able to watch it. It's on the BBC iPlayer. We can't get that here. So... The BBC need to repeat this or we need to try and find it somehow because it is absolutely brilliant. A very British scandal, hopefully coming back to a TV screen near us soon because it needs to be repeated. RTE need to buy it, I would suggest, if you're listening. Or Virgin Media and start showing it. Or Netflix. But someone put it on something that people can watch again. And then finally, uh, just in closing for this part of this show, I do have to mention Mrs. Brown's Boys because it's become a staple of the Christmas schedule. There was one on Christmas night and also New Year's Eve. Now, I've long been of the opinion that, you know, the people who bemoan Mrs. Brown's boys, you know, they kind of miss the point and it's, it's, I don't think it's as good as fans do, but I certainly don't think it's half as bad as we've been led to believe. And I do really enjoy the fourth wall breaking where Brendan O'Carroll primarily will, you know, come out of character and when people mess up lines and that's, that's quite funny. So I kind of have had no problem with it over the years. That said, this year's specials were weak, 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 uh, really weak sauce, as Mark Roy would have to say. It just seems no one was bothered really writing any kind of decent script uh, and the jokes, I didn't laugh once and it gives me no pleasure. You know, we don't go in for kicking the life out of stuff on this show, but he needs to go back and dream it all up again, Mr. O'Carroll, because weak sauce, I'll say it again, incredibly 
weak sauce. Anyway, let me know if you might have been watching any of the things I've just been talking to you about there. Mrs. Brown's Boys, The Book of Boba Fett, A Very British Scandal, or Clifford the Big Red Dog. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. And I did say finally, but finally, finally, I can't not mention the sad passing of Peter Bogdanovich, a fantastic director. He began life as a film critic uh, or was a film critic at some stage, which is a rare career trajectory to go from critic to director. But he made great movies like The Last Picture Show, uh, What's Up Doc and The Wonderful Paper Moon. He was really hot in the 70s, you know. They had him in line for things like The Exorcist and The Godfather. He, He turned some of those down. In later life, rightly or wrongly, he was best known for his role in The Sopranos where he played Dr. Melfi's therapist and he was great at that. The last thing he did was a documentary about Buster Keating, a kind of celebration of him. But he was a he was a powerhouse of cinematic talent and indeed television talent. So R.I.P. Peter Bogdanovich. Up next, Mark Ryle on some of the new movies in the cinema. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. And if you've just tuned in, let me wish you a happy new year again. And more importantly, let me wish Mark Ryle, a resident critic, a happy new year. Hello, Mark. Hi, John. Is the window not closed now on, on happy new year? No, no, I'm, I'm going to do this for a few weeks. I'm going to do it again to you next week. And depending <laughs> on your reaction, maybe even the following week. And, you know, people may be tuning in for the first time. You wouldn't know. So, I'm, okay. I'm, And also, I have to point out that Mark is our, as I say, resident critic. He's here most weeks to review the week's new releases. This week, we're, we're going back because because of the Christmas madness, we missed The Matrix Resurrections, which is still in, in cinema. I was going to say in hospitals. There's a Freudian slip. It's still in cinemas. So we do want to talk about that because if people are going to the cinema, it's probably one they're keen to see or certainly to know what we think of it. And also a new movie coming this week to Amazon on Friday, the 7th of January. The directorial effort, not to, not his debut, he's done lots of them actually at this stage, but George Clooney, The Tender Bar, more of that and on. Let's start with The Matrix Resurrections. Mark, the fourth Matrix movie after a long time. A very long time, yeah. Um, I think it was. Tw- it's twenty-two years since the original, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's about nineteen since the since the two misguided uh, sequels. I, 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 think... I thought the second one was okay. I thought it was a bit underrated. I, I really didn't like the third one, but look, it's it's your piano, so I, I I'll be quite honest with you. I'm struggling now to recall anything about the 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 two sequels. Yeah. Okay. Uh, fair enough. Uh, but other than the fact that. They probably should have been left alone. Um, I don't think this this new one has 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 done anything to change my mind on that either. I think don't tamper with with greatness. Just just let it be. Um, so uh, sorry, can I interrupt by saying, were you a big fan of the first movie? Oh, the original was yeah. just it's a masterpiece. Okay, uh, hands down. The 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 Wachowskis, they they they. Their their influences were were very blatant. It was stuff like manga and video games and yeah. Lewis Carroll. But I mean, what they created was something. It was dazzlingly original and there really was nothing quite like it at the time and of course based on cartesian philosophy all about the ghost and machine from descartes the 1500s but let's not talk of strangers now (laughs) okay so anyway yeah 22 years later keanu reeves and carrie-anne moss return as neo and trinity um and what is it's twenty two years the original Matrix blah 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 and I think what the what's what's going on here is that um, uh, as things kick off um, uh, Keanu Reeves 
is Thomas Anderson. He's a video game designer. He's living back in the Matrix and he's working on a sequel to a very successful video game franchise called The Matrix. And then he starts having these weird flashbacks and visions. And then a new Morpheus shows up who's not played by Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, he's got more colored pills. Neo takes the red one and then it's back to trench coats and latex and bad sunglasses. And it's very much a rehashing of the story, isn't it? It is. It's very, very knowing and meta. Um, I, I think Neil Patrick Harris is, I, I, like, I'm almost certain that he's the villain. <laughs> <laughs> um, his, his dialogue is all about doubling productivity and hitting target goals. And then uh, Christina Ricci shows up in a very small role at the beginning. And all of her, she's talking about, it, her dialogue seems to have been lifted straight from a Warner Brothers board meeting verbatim. It's all focus group research, exploiting the brand and building an IP and all of this. And it, I appreciate that that Lana Wachowski, she was trying to be deliberately meta and self-referential, but I think it really does go too far. I, I was expecting at one stage for Keanu to look down the camera and, and wink, you know? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I thought some of those bits were kind of funny, but the problem I had with it is, and maybe you can elaborate on this, but like the meta bits and, and his knowing looks occasionally, and they talk about why would we create another video game when the first one was perfect. That kind of made me smile a bit. I, I could see it was a bit overwrought. But the problem is, outside of that, there isn't a very good action movie here, unfortunately. There's not, think. no. Um, on that, Yeah, I could have done with seeing without seeing Keanu on the on the toilet as well. Yeah, um, yeah, depending the, on the, your preferences, yeah. The the action, like the thing about, yeah, as you say, I mean, the difference, I suppose, between the original and this one is, is very stark. Um, the, the action here, it's very generic and it's very derivative and it doesn't really have any impact mm -hmm. and you don't get any sense of, of risk or peril for the characters. Um, I think there, there might have been one decent big set piece around 40 minutes from the end of the movie. But other than that, it's extremely generic. It also takes an absolute age to get going. Yeah. And there's no there's no pace or rhythm to it. It's all very bitty and episodic. Uh, the original movie, it was it was incredibly well paced and it had a, a clearly defined logic to the, the the events and clear set goals. But this one is just just really a set of set pieces with no rhyme or reason or logic to them. Yeah. Um, ap apart from setting up another fight. I mean, what happens is that Keanu and a bunch of non-player characters walk out of a mirror into a warehouse or a basement or something. And then another bunch of non-player characters show up. Then they all knock seven bells out of each other over and over again. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if it was just me, but I couldn't understand why most of this stuff was happening. And it didn't really seem to have to bear much relation to the plot at all. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And you know what? I was talking earlier in the show about uh, the book of Boba Fett and fan service. And, you know, I, I think it might be time to call halt on fan service because there's just, even though I said I like the knowing winks and all, but when you're basing a movie entirely on the success of a first one and you have to constantly throw in references to the first yeah. one or the first two, it just gets, it wears you down a bit. Yeah, it's almost like a clip show. Um, yeah, the, the, and that 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 kind of aesthetic that that looked cool twenty two years ago, it's 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 gotten very dated and cheesy looking mm. now. Um, a lot of the non Keanu Reeves characters, they they look like they're doing cosplay outside a comics convention. <laughs> um, just on the cast, I suppose we should talk about um, Carrie Ann Moss and Keanu Reeves. I don't know why. I don't understand why Keanu gets such a hard time. He's not he's not Joaquin Phoenix and he's never tried to be, you know. Yeah. He is what he is and I think he's very good at what he does and 
uh, himself and Carrie Ann Moss are easily the best thing about this new movie, but really that isn't saying a whole lot. And Neil Patrick Harris as this psychiatrist, what did you mm. think of him? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, it's, it's bizarre. The casting is bizarre. There's a new Morpheus and there's a new Agent Smith, um, which is which doesn't make any sense because Lawrence Fishburne and Hugo Weaving are available as far as I know. And then some of the other roles have been recast and bizarrely the ones that should have been recast haven't because jada pinkett smith has been stuck in this awful old woman makeup um and i think the role could have been easily given to a more age-appropriate actor but i mean it's just it's a bit all over the place really yeah and you know you i was pleased because i wasn't sure we'd never discussed it if you were a fan so you you really liked the original and how it looked and felt and all that so you were going into this with a very open mind well i mean I guess I was. I, I, I do think the original is a, is a masterpiece, but mm. I think I definitely think it should have been left well enough unknown. And yeah. nothing in the Matrix Resurrections has has changed my mind on that. You know, quite tellingly, I saw before Christmas Keanu Reeves on the Graham Norton show talking about this, and he got the name of it wrong. <laughs> you know, that's how much he's invested in this. So uh, <laughs> me and Mark are kind of saying you don't need to invest too much in it, even if you are a big Matrix fan. We don't think so. What would you say stars wise for this? I, I'm, I mean, I'm not sure what was trying to be achieved here, but I, I, it, it didn't work for me at all. And I'm going to give it a two. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to give it a two as well. I mean, I liked Keanu Reeves being the video game designer and world weary and going for coffee and maybe having a middle-aged romance. But I, I kind of didn't like the action and the yeah. sci-fi bits, which is what the whole point of it, the exactly. Matrix really is, you know? Exactly, yeah. And I thought I'd be able to mention Descartes more, but the movie just didn't allow for that, you know? You It'd just do be preposterous if I brought him up again. So that's two from Mark, and I'm going to give it two as well. Now, a uh, more intriguing movie, and one I certainly mm. enjoyed more, is The Tender Bar. It's based on a memoir. It's directed by George Clooney. He's not in it, although Ben Affleck is, and many others. Tell us what's going on in this. It is uh, George Clooney's eighth movie in the director's chair, if you can mm. believe that. Yeah, no, um, I can't. He's actually been doing it for a long time, yeah, relatively speaking. I think 2001-ish, around then. It is a, yeah, it's a coming-of-age story. It's based on the memoir by J.R. Moringer, and it is uh, Moringer at two important points in his life. Uh, he, it, it's him as a six, year, a six, I think about eight-year-old living in, um, in 1973, moving back into his mother's overcrowded family home with his extended family in Long Island, and then the older uh, JD in 1986 as he begins college life at Yale. And in the absence of um, J.R.'s birth father, his uncle Charlie, who's played by Ben Affleck, fills the role of father figure. And he schools him in, in the ways of the world and quietly steers him towards his destiny um, as a writer. Mm, and his mother's very keen for him to go to Yale. That's a recurring motif in it. Did you enjoy this? I, I really liked it a lot. Um, yeah, it's a, so so did I. I thought you might find it a bit too hokey. So I'm glad to hear you say that. I don't like a bit of hokey. Um, you don't just, like it, a bit of hokey. You I don't do mind like, a bit of hokey. You don't mind, I don't a, mind bit of hokey. a bit of hokey. No, hokey. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a very nice, sweet story about a bunch of very likable and appealing characters. Yeah. Um, and it's not a particularly original story. And no. Clooney doesn't try to tell it in an unusual or a unique way. Um, it is a very, very traditional movie and it's not a demanding watch in the slightest, but it's, it's, it's quite charming. 
and a lot of heart in it as well. I'll tell you the thing I really liked about it is that it felt like a movie out of time to a certain extent and that it's set largely in the 70s and and of course the 80s. And often nowadays, and, and this isn't a bad thing, but often when that happens, people are trying to make up for sins of the past in that era. So often there's an eye on not being misogynistic or not being racist, which of course we salute and all. But in this, there was none of that because there was no racism or misogyny in this particular view of the 70s and 80s. So it was just a story about a kid with his missing father and the lovely relationship with his surrogate father, his uncle, and his very proud mother. And I thought it was mm. kind of delightful in that way, you know? It, it is, yeah. It's, it has a very rose-tinted uh, view of the past. Yeah. But um, as I said, not, like they're just nice people and I don't want to give away any spoilers, but nothing, nothing bad really happens, you know? <laughs> Yeah, well, there's there's a pretty, you know, there's there's a missing father. We should mention he has some kind of relationship with his father, but his father's not a very nice man. And no. uh, he's so on that, the radio. Yeah, I know. Well, there's your problem right there, you know. <laughs> Good issue. But ben Affleck, as he plays his uncle, and he's in, uh, he's a barman. He's a bar yeah. owner, as far as I know. And he's this kind of, you know, he's read a lot of books, and he's constantly mm. schooling the young kid about what life's about. Like that was hokey, but I smiled a lot and I thought Ben Affleck was great. If a little, you know, that wasn't real life. I think you were no. saying to me when we were talking beforehand, someone like that would probably be bitter with a station in life. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. I Absolutely. could have had class, but Ben Affleck's character wasn't really. No, but the character is great, and, and Affleck mm. is 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 brilliant in this. I think material like uh, this and and the way back. It's a really good fit for him mm. rather than the big blockbuster stuff that he, he also does. Well, I thought the way back, we reviewed that last year. That's a really yeah. unsung movie where he plays a recovering alcoholic basketball Yeah, it's a really coach. good movie. It's a, it's a great film. And you're right. He does these human, I don't want to call them soft because the way back is quite hard hitting, but those human dramas really well. He should put down the cape and pick up the emotional yeah, toolkit. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think he's kind of moving into a, the stage in his, his, his career where he can, he can get away with doing that, you know? Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, as the character is, it's a very appealing character, and it is almost to an improbable extent because he he does play this highly intelligent, well-read guy who's never moved out of his parents' house, and he tends bar at the local pub. And you would imagine that a little bitterness would creep in at some stage, but it never ever does. And he's almost this magical mentor; he never puts a foot wrong. Um, but like he still, Affleck, I think, still steals the movie. Him and the, oh God, I have to talk about the six-year-old, uh, yeah. Daniel Ranieri. He's just incredible. He's just so natural and unshowy. He doesn't have that child actor thing going on at all. Not at all. A completely natural, organic performance. Yeah. I, I, I thought he was great. Also, uh, remind me of the actor who plays the adult kid. Oh, it's Ty Sheridan. Ty Sheridan, that's it. Yeah. I thought he, he, was, he was passable doing what he did. He's good, yeah. And then Ron Livingston is doing the voiceover. We should mention that the voiceover. I did. Well, it, we it, both had a problem with that. Yeah, it didn't work for me. I, I, they're, I think they're, they're a very, very dated storytelling device. I haven't really been able to take them seriously since the Wonder Years. But it's funny you say that because it comes on about three seconds into the movie and it sounds exactly like the guy in the style from the Wonder Years, you know? Yes. Uh, and it, it was also pointless. Like there's, and I'm not going to give a spoiler, but there's one scene where Ben Affleck tells the young kid to go and do something and he does it. Yeah. And we see he's doing it by, it's obvious, he's in a car heading there and a voiceover comes in saying, like, it, it, it didn't need it. The movie was well enough directed that you didn't need these signposts, yeah, you know? It, 
it's it's a it's a lazy device. The thing about voiceovers is that they they tell you what you're supposed to be feeling instead yeah. of just watching the story. Yeah, exactly. And this movie didn't need it because it, no. it was completely obvious what was going on. No, it didn't. But that's that's small small change really because we both enjoyed it and kind of got a warm fuzzy glow from it. You know, Absolutely. I think didn't we? You you got a warm fuzzy glow. I did. Yeah, yeah. No, I really enjoyed it. Good, good. So, what would you say stars wise? Um, I'm going to give it three and a half. That's exactly what I'm going to give it as well. I was thinking about four. I always say that. But, you know, four, you got to hold for the big guns, I guess. But They're not all fours, John. They're not all fours. And then fives, we give them out very rarely. Well, but, you know. Let's not. Yeah, no, no, no. This is this is three and a half. The Tender Bar, well worth a watch, though. A nice, cheery movie on Amazon Prime from this Friday, January the 7th. Thank you, Mark. And once again, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, John. I know a lot of guys that think they're writers, and you'll find in life that most of them are not. Here's the thing. You gotta have it. I don't know what it is, but if you don't have it immediately, you never get it. And I say you got it. Oh, I knew it. Oh, I knew it. I knew it. There's just there's. There's something. Calm down. I didn't say you were good. I said, you know, you could be. A clip there from The Tender Bar, which is on Amazon Prime from this Friday, the 7th of January. And me and Mark liked it a lot. Up next, filmmaker and musician Philip King on his favourite movie. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to a person of note about their favourite movie. I wanted to start this new year with someone positive and upbeat. And if ever there was a person to be positive about the power of movies and music and the arts in general, it's Philip King. The musician, broadcaster and filmmaker is, of course, the man behind the incredible Other Voices series. And he's long espoused the importance of the arts. So I'm delighted he's agreed to chat to me today about his favourite movie, Philip how are you? Hello, John. Happy New Year to you from West Kerry. I hope you're safe and well and in very good form. And you too. Well, from the East Coast to the West Coast, it's Indeed. lovely to have you. Tell me this. Uh, in a way, this is a no-brainer. I know what you've chosen as your favourite movie, but tell our listeners what it is and why. Well, the movie that I've chosen is a movie called The Last Waltz. It's a movie made and directed by Martin Scorsese, and it was made on the 25th of November 1976 as the band, probably the greatest band ever to come out of America, and some people would say one of the greatest bands ever to strike music together on the stages of the world, came to their last waltz. They had decided that after 17 years on the road, it was time to call it a day. I think Robbie Robertson had said somewhere previously that the road is a goddamn impossible way of life. <laughs> so, so what they did was they went to the Winterland Ballroom on the 25th of November, 1976, and gathered there like for an old Irish session, if you like. And they gathered together some of the world's greatest musicians, some of their friends, some of the people who had influenced them. And they sat down to play a selection of music and a five-hour gig together. Now, if you think of 1976, um, what was happening in Ireland, U2 formed that year in Mount Temple. The Bothy Band had just recorded their first album in 1975. Killian Murphy was born that year. 
And, you know, the political situation in the country with the North was very, very difficult. So just to give you some sort of context of the time. But what the most remarkable thing about the last waltz is, is that it is of its time, and to use Seamus Heaney's phrase, it is timeless, because the way in which the music is captured is never intrusive. The music is allowed to flow. And even with all of the grammar and editing of filmmaking and the sleight of hand of filmmaking, it invites you into the room and to be part and parcel and almost sit on the stage with this truly, truly remarkable band who were the founders of Americana, if you mm. like, um, mm. four members from Canada, Levon Helm from Arkansas. They had a history in the blues. They were Bob Dylan's backing band. They were the musicians' musicians. When music from the Big Pink came out, everybody, the Beatles included, said, what is this music? This is remarkable, remarkable stuff. Their second album, the band, the Brown Record, with so many great songs on it, was the sound, if you like, of America. It was really, really timeless. So by the time they got to walk onto the stage of the the Winterland Ballroom um, in 1976, they were ready. They were ready to say goodbye. They were ready to play their last waltz. Yeah. And it's truly a remarkable, remarkable thing. Frank Hart, the great song collector from Chapel Lizard in Dublin, now sadly no longer with us, who loved a great song, used to say that if you want to know the facts, consult a history book. If you want to know what it felt like, ask a singer. And what this film is, is it is a film suffused with feeling. And think about the band for a second. Every single one of them, including Garth Hudson, could sing. Every single one of them was a proficient player who had played every single ballroom chitlin circuit gig um, in uh, right across America, who had played the great stages of the world with Bob Dylan. And here they were to bring it home with their friends. And when I saw this film first, I was, I suppose, driven by it to continue what was the beginning of a musical expedition for me. So for me, at a personal level, Every single song here has a meaning that is suffused, as I said, with emotion, power, passion and inspiration. And tell me this, what I love about it, well, there's lots of things I love about it. I mean, it's, you know, to call it a concert film in a way does it a disservice, but to me it's the greatest concert film of all time. But it's the heady mix of characters. Like you have Van Morrison doing (laughs) karate kicks, there's Neil Diamond in there. Like it could have been chaos. And I think there might've been a bit of chaos backstage, but yet it all hangs together as amazingly as you say. I think that the heart of the matter, of course, is the music. And to use another Seamus Heaney phrase, Seamus always admonished people or advised people rather to say, you must sing yourself to where the singing comes from. These people know where the singing comes from. They knew the blues. They knew country music. They knew rock and roll. They knew the whole affair, upside down, in inside out. They were master musicians. And so when musicians gather together, and even in a chaotic fashion, by the time they hit the stage, they really know what they're doing. 
you know, Neil Young saying to Robbie, you got it now, Robbie, when he gets the key right. You know, Van doing that truly remarkable athletic version of Caravan, turn up your radio, <laughs> and him singing Tura Lura Lura, that's an Irish lullaby mm. with the band. But then you listen to Paul Butterfield take out his harmonica. And I remember Captain Beefheart used to always say, give me that harp, boy. That ain't no children's toy. <laughs> and then in Paul Butterfield's hands, this ain't no children's toy. And he plays that astoundingly energetic version of Mystery Train. And then their old friend, the old country blues man who had made his way all of the way up the Mississippi River to land in Chicago, Muddy Waters, singing that astounding version of Manish Boy, Life is a Carnival, and then Such a Night, the honky-tonk stride piano channeling, you know, Professor Longhair. There he is, Dr. John, sitting at the piano, singing that throwaway Such a Night with such... I would just say style and pizzazz. And then their own songs, Up on Cripple Creek, Oh, mm. You Don't Know the Shape I'm In, Rag Mama Rag, you know, and then the glorious Emmy Lou singing Evangeline with the band. And, you know, King Harvest has surely come. What a remarkable gathering up together. And then Bob Dylan arrives. And baby, won't you follow me down? And he sings that version of Forever Young. And yeah. of course, then the plaintive, beautiful, beautiful voice of Richard Manuel singing, I shall be released. There was nothing like it before. There will be nothing like it afterwards. And I'm just so thrilled and delighted that Mark Scorsese took a photograph and had the presence of mind to take a photograph of what was a picture, not of all the American musical landscape, but of a slice of it, if you like. Um, Joni is there, of course, singing Coyote. She had just written Coyote. She had been on the road on the Rolling Thunder Review with Bob Dylan. And there she is writing her song about Sam Shepard, you know, um, no regrets, Coyote. We just come from such different sets of circumstance. I'm up all night in the studio and you're out there on your ranch. You know, yeah. Neil Young, as I said, Eric Clapton, further on up the road. Um, anybody who hasn't seen this can luxuriate in listening to a slice of American music that is unparalleled. And I just think that I agree with Frank Hart. I agree that what music can do is give us a sense of the emotional temperature of the time in which we live. Yeah. And when I saw this movie for the first time, I got the sensation that there was an Irish dimension or a thumbprint that was Irish on much of the balladry here, particularly Levon Helm and particularly Robbie Robertson's way of being able to write a song that could sound like a traditional ballad. I think that the music that left here in the heads and the hands and the feet of migrants and arrived in America is woven into the DNA of what the band became. Yeah. And 
Well, listen, I could listen to you luxuriate uh, in this description <laughs> all day, but we better move on. But I applaud your articulateness about The Last Waltz and I wholly support it as just one of the greatest pieces of music on stage ever seen on film. Listen, uh, you have been at the helm of Other Voices now sure. since day one. And I talked to you earlier before we came on saying we could go down a rabbit hole musically. Sure. When it comes to Other Voices, you know, I, I got married to an elbow song. I was beguiled <laughs> by Amy Winehouse. So I could talk to you about this all day. So yes. we won't because we don't have time. But you must be I, well, let's, for want of a better phrase, immensely proud of it because, you know, I've met music guys and chancers over the years or, or just guys with ambition who said things like, you know, I'm going to bring James Brown to Sligo or I'm going to get Ray Davies from the Kinks to do blah, blah, blah. You know, or even in radio, people have these madcap ideas and, and it just doesn't work because that's the way of the world. Yet here we are all these years later. Now, I know you had to change it up in the pandemic, but it's become it has a world stage from this small town on the west southwest coast of Ireland. So are you proud of it? I am immensely proud of it. And the thing I am most proud of is I'm proud of the music. I'm proud of the musicians. And I am proud of the crews, the lighting people, the sound people who can make the artists audible and visible, not just here in Dingle, but then that we can capture it, photograph it and send it to a world stage. And in a peculiar way, the last waltz was an entry point for me in what might or could be possible. It painted for me a portrait of a possibility. I think that we have a hugely brilliant, diverse music in Ireland, and we're going through a golden age of it right now. And it's just a privilege to be able to be here in West Kerry and invite people like, you know, Guy Garvey and Elbow and Ray Davis, who have all been here, and the late and wonderful Amy Winehouse as well. But the heart of the matter, is really about giving a platform to the musicians and the singers who want a life in music and to say here with the best production values in the world and great sound and wonderful lighting is a stage for you to stand on. Off you go, do your thing and take it away to the world. Wow. Well, mission accomplished it would say that sounds like an epitaph of sorts not not to age you though you have miles to go before you sleep oh, he we're, is only, a sh we're, we're only we're, we're only starting i mean this is a, a musical expedition that will go on and go on you know Absolutely. i mean the seed has been sown the thing has been nourished um a whole range of various different people make this possible um support from a whole range of stakeholders make it possible but the thing without which it is not possible is the music Absolutely. And the music is the heart of the matter. And it's that conjunction that I've been working in all my life where music and film come together and the technology enables us to encode it, to photograph it. And its most important attribute in the end of the day is that in X amount of years time, like we're talking about 1976, we can take out this out of the box and say, look, there was Conor O'Brien and there was his first gig or there was Dermot Kennedy. There was Orla Gartland. There were Saint Sister. That's them when they started. Absolutely. Well, his favourite movie is The Last Waltz. He is a shining light for the arts, for music and movies. It's a sheer delight to talk to him. Philip King, thank you very much. Thanks a million, John. And I hope we meet and get to talk to each other again soon. Philip King there chatting to me about his favourite movie, The Last Waltz. It is quite simply the greatest concert movie 
ever made. It's incredible. And the soundtrack is wonderful. That is it for this week. Just to remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm on Newstalk. Thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show. You can get in touch with me at any stage. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle where you can email me screentime at Newstalk.com. Have a good week and all things being equal, I will talk to you next week.